Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to week two of Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary, and I'll be the teacher for the entire study. Um, the schedule looks like this. We'll go about ten weeks, and then we'll take a two-week break, and then we'll start another round of ten weeks, and then we'll take a two-week break and go keep going like that until we finish the commentary. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, then I'll read a little bit of liturgy, and then we'll get started with the study, okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King Lord, we bless your name, and we thank you for the opportunity to come and to sit and to worship you. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Yeshua, to die and to take upon us, uh, take upon himself the payment for our sins, to take upon himself the, the penalty for, Lord, indeed, we cannot, we could not have imagined that we could ever take this particular payment. We thank you that he, that his love is fully, has been fully demonstrated in this service and that uh, we expect now that he lives within us via his spirit. We thank you that you have preserved the words of this particular book, the book of Galatians. And we thank you for uh, blessing the Apostle Paul for penning these words. We know that they are relevant for us. We know that they are pertinent for our Torah communities today. Help us, Father, to be about your business. Help us to uh, seek your face in all things. Help us to be forgiving of one another as we continue to press in closer in our walk with you. Help us to continue to look to Yeshua, the author and the finisher of our faith. Thank you for these uh, times in which we can meet together via internet. I pray that you'll bless each and every student who's come out today. I pray that you'll bless the teacher as well, for he doesn't have all the answers. Bless us, Father, as we continue to study this text. We'll be careful to give you the praise in all things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. All right, let's date stamp the teaching today. Uh, today is Wednesday, October 21st, 2015. And uh, the reason it's Wednesday is because I'm a day ahead here in Korea, so the time is always going to be one day ahead of whatever day is scheduled for most people around the world. Let's open up with a little bit of liturgy. I've decided to read some um, some Hebrew and Greek, as usual. And this time, my Hebrew selection is going to come from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to read what's known in Judaism as the Shema, which means I'm going to read three passages. First passage will be Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 
through 9. And then I'm going to read the second passage, which is Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through verse uh, 21. And then finally, I'm going to read a, a selection out of the book of Numbers, which starts in uh, chapter 15, verse 37, and goes through the end of that chapter, which is verse 41. And then after that, I'll read a, a selection of Greek from the uh, Greek New Testament. I won't tell you in advance what verses I'm going to read. I want you to uh, listen to the Greek and then listen to the translation. Okay? So let's get started with the Hebrew. I think what I've decided to do this time is I'm going to read um, interlinear style. And what that means is I'll read Hebrew, then I'll read Greek, then I'll read, I'm sorry, I'll read Hebrew, then I'll read the verse in English, then I'll read Hebrew, then I'll read English. And I'll go like that, except for when I get to the Greek, then I'm just going to read the whole Greek, and then I'll just read the, the, uh, the English, okay? Let's get started. Verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. English, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5. Vahavta et Adonai Eloheka bakolavavka and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Verse 7. And thou shalt teach them diligently until thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Verse 8. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. Verse 9. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. By the way, the English version that I'm reading is the 1917 Jewish Publication Society translation. Let's continue with Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 21. Verse 13. Vahaya im shemoa tishmu'u el hayom la'ahava et adonai and it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 14. And I will give the rain of your land in its season, the former rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn, and thy wine, and thine oil. Verse 15. And I will give grass in thy fields for thy cattle, and thou shalt eat and be satisfied. Verse 16. Elohim lahem. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Verse 
17. V'chara af Adonai b'chem v'atzar et hashamim v'lo yiyeh matar ha'adama lo titen et yivla v'avadtem mehera me'al ha'aretz ha'tova ashira Adonai noten l'chem. And the anger of the Lord be kindled against you. And he shut up the heaven so that there be no rain. And the ground shall not yield her fruit. And ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Verse 18. et dvrai ele al v'al nafshechem. Ukshartem otam l'ot al yedchem v'hayu l'totofot b'en einechem. Therefore shall ye lay up these words... Lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. Verse 19. And you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Verse 20, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house, upon thy gates. And verse 21, That your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children, upon the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give them, as the days of the heavens above the earth. Let's check the recording levels. How are we doing? Doing good. Okay. Let's continue. Numbers 15, starting in verse 37. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe lemor. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 38, Daber el bene Yisrael va'amarta alehem va'asulahem tzitzit al kanfe vigdehem l'doratam v'natnu al tzitzit hakadaf patil tachelit. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them throughout their generations fringes in the corners of their garments, and that they put with the fringe of each corner a thread of blue. Verse thirty-nine. Vahaya lachem letzitzit uritem oto uskartem et kol mitzvot Adonai vaasitem otam velotaturu achre lavavchem vaachre einechem asher atem zunim achrehim. And it shall be unto you for fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that ye go not about after your own heart and your own eyes after which he used to go astray. Verse 40, Lema'an tis karu va'asitem et kol mitzvotai v'hitem kodoshim le'elohechem. And that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. And verse 41, Ani Adonai lohechem asher hutzeti etchem me'eretz mitzrayim lehiot lachem le'elohim. Ani Adonai Elohechem, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And now let's read a selection from the Greek. I'll just read the Greek, it'll be about four verses. <speaking in Hebrew> 
and then I'll go back and read the translation and you tell me if you recognized in advance before what the verse was going to be. The Greek reads, Me namasete hati elthon katalusai ton naman he tus prophetas uk elthon katalusai ala plerosai amen gar lego humen he os an parlthe ho uranos kai he ge iota hen e mia kraya u me parlthe apotunamu he os un panta genetai has in u luce mienton antolon tuton ton elachiston kai de Kutos tus anthropus ilachistos kletesetai in te basilea ton uranon has de anpoese kai de hutas megas kletesetai in te basilea ton uranon lego gar humen hati in me peresuse Humon he de caiosune, pleon ton grammation, kai pharaseon, u me aisultete ais ten basileon ton uranon. Here's the translation Matthew five seventeen through twenty from the English Standard Version. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Okay, that is the liturgy for our teaching. Let's get started with the commentary. Just a recap from last week. We talked about, um, we started with the introduction, and now we're working our way through the preface, and there are ten questions to the preface. If you're looking at your screen, let me just advance down a screen, a few screens, and you'll see that we're working our way through the preface, which is entitled, Ten Common Questions Regarding Torah Observance for Gentile Christians. The preface contains these ten questions in an effort to basically whet our appetite for the book of Galatians as a whole. It's no secret that prevailing Christian theology of today interprets Paul's book to the letter of Galatians here as his as basically his thesis against legalism is this his his thesis against going back under the law his thesis against returning to the works of the law the sabbath the dietary issues the rituals the festivals um things like that and so in standard christian parlance we would say that paul is teaching the his readers in the book of galatians that they no longer have to keep the law. They no longer have to be bound by 
uh, Jewish customs. They no longer have to worry about circumcision. They no longer have to keep kosher. They no longer have to worry about Sabbath day. Things like that. And as you probably already know by now, my position is that Paul is not teaching against these particular things. Rather, Paul is in fact combating a legalism that had a unique um, expression in the first century. It's not unlike the legalism that permeates Jewish communities today. But what we're going to be surprised to find out is that Paul, I don't believe that Paul is combating a merit theology system where the Judaisms of his day merely took the Torah and constructed a theological ladder to heaven whereby they could work their way into heaven by doing X, Y, Z. In other words, merit theology suggests if you simply keep the commandments routinely or keep them as best as you can, God will somehow weigh out your good deeds versus your bad deeds, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then he'll let you into heaven. And in this simplistic caricature described by standard Christianity, the church is seen as being released from any uh, any attempt to merit salvation by keeping the Torah. However, I don't believe that that's what Paul was teaching against. It is historically inaccurate in my uh, opinion and in my research into this topic. So these ten common questions regarding Torah observance for Gentile Christians are going to begin to move down the path of answering some of the primary objections to Torah observance, especially as it mentions for Christians. The reason I single out Christians and Gentile Christians is because um, in an effort to begin to um, identify and apply the book of Galatians, most pastors are going to aim their sermons at Gentile Christians and say, primarily that the Torah was given to Jews only. It was given to Israel. And when they say Israel, they mean Jewish Israel. And in doing so, God expected Israel or Jews to keep Torah because they are Jews. But God never expected Gentiles to keep Torah because they are not Jews. So, standard Christian theology primarily centers one of its hermeneutic foundational teachings that they no longer have to keep Torah. They base it on their, on their belief that the Torah was given to Israel, to Jewish Israel only. And that becomes one of the primary ways to identify the entire New Testament, especially Paul's writings, as he's interacting with the Judaisms of his day and as he's um, ministering to the up-and-coming Gentiles who are flooding into Israel in mass. That is one of the primary ones I mentioned. One of the other pillars of Christian theology today that you're going to find in common in the objection to keeping Torah is that many Christians will say that the Torah was done away with, the law was done away with. So, in my experience of teaching classes, teaching um, in various churches and, and topics related to Jewish and Christian dialogue, what I have done is I've carefully identified these two pillars of objections among standard Christian theologians. And the two pillars look like this. On the one hand, you have the pillar that says, the Torah has been done away with. It's been fulfilled in Jesus, and therefore we Christians no longer have to keep it. That's pillar one. And pillar two is that the Torah was given to Jewish Israel only. And in describing 
the recipients of the Torah as Jewish Israel, it it conveniently excludes Gentile Christians from having any obligation to it because they do not fall under the uh, designation Jewish Israel. You see my point? So essentially, we have these two pillars. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our preface with the ten common questions regarding Torah observance for Gentile Christians. Last week we looked at question one and question two. Uh, question one was, what is Torah? It was a very short question. Question two was, to whom was Torah given and who is required or allowed to follow it? And we're going to start this week with question three. So if you're looking at the screen, we should be right there on question three. And the question reads, didn't Yeshua fulfill the law and nail it to the cross? Now, um, as I begin to develop the answer here and you read along with me, you'll see that this is going to be one of the primary objections. If you remember, the ten objections that I've created for this uh, preface are real-life questions. They're not imaginary questions, per se. In my um, dialogue with well-meaning uh, friends, family, who do not share my views about Torah observance, uh, uh, pastor friends that I've met, and just visiting various churches, um, I've kind of kept a running tally of some of the common uh, questions or objections that that I get met with as I uh, interact with Christians. And this is one of the main ones. Didn't Yeshua fulfill the law and nail it to the cross? Now, of course, the reference is to our familiar passage that we used in our um, liturgy today, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So let's read the answer and begin to develop what I believe is the context behind understanding this particular uh, passage. I'm also going to be pulling in a Colossians passage here, because if you notice, the question says, didn't Yeshua nail the law to the cross? And that's taken from the familiar Colossians passage. Answer. This is a central teaching of the Bible, and thus this answer is going to be just a bit longer than normal. Yeshua did, and bring the, did indeed bring the law to its fullest intended meaning and expression. And when we say that, we have to, as I pause here in my commentary, when we say that he brought the law to its intended meaning and expression, this, I believe, starts to develop the context behind this word fulfill in the passage. Because indeed, Jesus kept the law in such a way that he became the model for us to keep it. But not only so, he kept the law because it fulfilled the righteous requirement that God expected, that God himself set forth in the law. So, Jesus did bring the law to its fullest intended meaning and expression. But that doesn't mean, or doesn't have to mean, that the law has been done away with. Let's keep reading my answer. The root Greek word pleiro, which is rendered as fulfill in Matthew 5.17, in most English translations, fulfill or something to that effect. If you look this word up in your standard um, lexicon or um, concordance, Bible, dictionary, etc., you're going to find that it simply means to fill to the top or to make full or to bring to realization. Um, let me jump over in my... Uh, commentary here. I'm sorry, in my... Uh, I, I have Thayer's uh, commentary pulled up on my computer, so let me jump over to that particular word. Um, where he says, I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Play row. Let me look that up here real quick. Just give you some of the other definitions that show up. This is from 
Thayer's Greek lexicon has a few definitions. To make full, to fill up, to fill, that's definition number one. Um, to cause to abound, to furnish, or supply liberally. He also uh, supplies the definition number two, to render full, to complete, to fill up, to perfect, to consummate, uh, to make complete in every particular, to render perfect, to carry through to the end, to accomplish, to carry out. Um, I like this particular nuance, to carry into effect, to bring to realization, to realize, to perform, to execute, to fulfill. So you see, Yeshua accomplishes all of these things when he fulfills the law. However, as I keep reading in my commentary, contrary to popular Christian teaching, God's Torah never commanded or expected sinless perfection, else the sacrifices for sin would be meaningless. Now that's an important point to consider, because, again, in my experience of dialoguing with many well-meaning Christians, I find it quite um, common for some Christians to believe that God expected a standard of perfection, something along the lines of, if you keep the Torah perfectly, I'll save you. And if you break one single law, then you're guilty of breaking all of them. Something like that. And I think um, part of this is developed from a passage out of the book of James I'm going to read here in a moment. But if you read through the Torah actually practically, if you just actually read through it with a practical view, you'll find that it's not really possible to interpret a meaning that would suppose that God expects you to keep every point perfect perfectly. Because the sacrifices come along and say, it basically, in, as I summarize, the, fact, the sacrifices were given just in case you fail. Which means if the Torah were a grocery list, you'd have to be keeping the sacrificial commandments as well. But by keeping the sacrificial commandments, then you're presuming that to admit that you've already failed in some point or another. Which means a perfect standard could not have been um, given by God. Make sense? The logic must uh, make sense there. And let's keep reading my answer. However, in Messiah, we are in fact supposed to strive towards perfection in this life. God said to Abraham in our Torah portion for this week, Parashat Lech Lecha, walk before me and be thou perfect. In uh, chapter 17 of Genesis, walk before me and be thou perfect. God is asking us to walk in such a way that we are blameless before God. And of course, we know that the only way we can be blameless before God is if our righteousness is found in the Messiah himself. If we surrender to the Messiah, then we can be blameless before God. We're not expected to be perfect, but we are expected to strive towards being righteous in his sight. And of course, that striving is not done under our own, our own power. It's done under the power of the Holy Spirit. So we do strive towards perfection in this life until we one day finally put it on for eternity. Therefore, in this life... And while the temple stood in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, true obedience to Torah included bringing sacrifices when one sinned, right? So God didn't expect perfection. God anticipated our failures, and therefore he made provision for us to be recovered or to be reinstated into the community or to be um, repaired, as it were, to, to be brought back to a right standing, both ritually when the temple was standing and positionally in his sight. Because we fall from time to time, and God extends forgiveness. God extends reconciliation. 
and therefore God knows that we're not going to be able to perfectly keep and do all the things that he asks of us. He doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect obedience, heartfelt obedience. Thus, the Torah actually anticipated, as I keep reading my commentary, the Torah actually anticipated our failure to keep it from time to time by making provision for our shortcomings. So read Genesis, I'm sorry, read Galatians 3.19, and you'll see that's exactly, um, that's essentially what Paul's uh, getting at there. In fact, let me bring up Galatians 3.19 just briefly. Let me turn to my online Bible here. Uh, Galatians 3.19 reads, this is ESV, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. We are going to deal with that particular verse when we get to it uh, probably you know, several weeks from now as we're working our way down through the book of Galatians. But suffice to say right now, Paul is simply trying to explain to his readers that the law was brought into the picture because of transgressions. And when it says because of transgressions, at a, at a rudimentary level, uh, the law and transgressions have a relationship with one another. Therefore, the law with its sacrifices, um, with its remedy for sin, becomes one of the methods by which we can be restored in our relationship, both with our fellow man and with God, as we fail. So that's just a kind of an overview of, Genesis, of Galatians 3.19. Let's keep reading the commentary. Without expecting sinless perfection, the Torah nevertheless does consider even a single breach to be guilty of violating the whole. This is the James passage that I alluded to earlier. Thus, to break one commandment was to be guilty of breaking them all. Read James, or actually the book should be called Jacob, right? Read James 2.10. That's a common verse that is brought into the argument when um, people want to say, well, what's the use in keeping trying to keep the law when if we break one of them, you're guilty of breaking all of them? Why try to even keep one? I think that logic is wrong-headed because... God, knowing in advance that we are going to break one or several of them in our attempt to keep any of them, would still have us attempt to keep them, right? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, try to keep them, and since I know you're going to fail to keep all of them, don't try to keep any single one of them. No, that's not what Jesus taught us. He taught us to try to keep them in our expression of love for him. So I think God would agree, obviously, Paul would agree, that uh, we should try to keep them, that we should become um, Torah observant in our walk. Let's keep reading my commentary. And since the final payment for sin would have demanded the final death of the sinner, you can reference Ezekiel 18.20, Yeshua paid this price, this is how he fulfilled the law in Matthew 5.17, Yeshua paid this price by dying in our place, thus fulfilling, there's our Greek word play ro'o, thus fulfilling the payment required by the Torah. The Torah demanded a payment for sin, and Yeshua fulfilled that payment by becoming the sacrifice for sin in our place. Right? Substitutionary atonement. He became the sacrifice where, in fact, we should have been the ones dying. But he, in fact, died so that we can live. What does the Torah say? I now live because Christ died. That's what Paul teaches us in the book of Romans. Let's keep reading the commentary. 
But Yeshua's words here in Matthew carry an additional meaning as evidenced by his own explanation in verses 18 through 20, and indeed the rest of his Sermon on the Mount. So when we stop and quote Matthew 5.17 and say that Jesus fulfilled the law, therefore we don't have to keep the law, I believe this disagrees, this, this logic that I just stated, this would disagree with the rest of the verses, the, continuing, the continuation of the passage, because Yeshua goes on to explain what he means by fulfill and abolish, and he certainly doesn't supply a meaning that implies that fulfill means that we don't have to do them. In fact, let's keep reading my commentary. In the following verses, the Master plainly reveals that all of Torah must eventually be fulfilled, and even implies that true followers of God will carry out this fulfillment by doing and teaching others to do even the least of the commandments. Right? After all, just because Yeshua obeyed the Torah perfectly, this doesn't excuse believers from remaining obedient to its commandments. Let me pause there uh, in my commentary and go back and read uh, Matthew 5, 17-20 again so that we can see this is what the Master said. This is what Yeshua said. Verse 17, Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we have a, we have a, a, a dichotomy being set up. We have abolish on the one hand and fulfill on the other. Obviously, they're opposites. And Yeshua is trying to explain, I didn't come to do one thing. I came to do something entirely different. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished or all is fulfilled. Now, Yeshua doesn't stop there. He actually explains himself in the next two verses by giving this example. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Now, let me pause for a moment. If we were to diagram the verse so that we end up with parallel lines of concepts. So we have two running lines, a, a, a column down the left and a column down the right, and we're able to, to compare uh, the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the parallel thoughts. Then essentially when Yeshua says, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill, in verses 17 and 18, when he starts explaining himself in verse 19 and 20, and he says, therefore, whoever relaxes, the word relaxes there must be parallel to abolish. Whoever relaxes, meaning abolishes, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to abolish slash relax them will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, now the word, the phrase does them must be parallel to fulfill them, Right? Because these are the parallel thoughts, the parallel concepts that Yeshua is establishing in his example. Whoever does them, which is parallel to fulfill them, and teaches them, which is also parallel to fulfill them, will be called great in the kingdom. So we have these two parallel thoughts running side by side here. And they are opposites. The abolishing of the Torah is tantamount to relaxing and teaching others to relax. So abolish, relax, and teach others to relax. Those are all in one column. And um, uh, whoever does them 
and teaches others to do them, right? Does them and teaches them is parallel to fulfill them, and that's in a separate column. And Yeshua is trying to show that these two oppose one another. And Yeshua takes his side with the side that is fulfill and does them and teaches them. And this amounts to great in the kingdom. And the other column, the, the opposite column, the um, abolish slash relax slash teach others to relax results in least in the kingdom. So it's a negative column. It's a column that we want to avoid. We want to avoid the negative column that has to do with abolishing and relaxing and teaching others to relax them. Instead, we want to model our life after the positive column that Yeshua is presenting for us here, which is the fulfill and do and teach others. Because that's what Yeshua said he came to do, right? I've not come to abolish, which is the negative view. I came to fulfill, which is the positive view. And then verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Interesting, in verse 19, it's an in-kingdom debate. It's an in-house debate. Those who relax and teach others to relax still make it into the kingdom, although their position will be least. And yet those in verse in the latter half of verse 20 who do and teach others to do will be called great in the kingdom. So both groups of people, the relaxers and the doers, are both in the kingdom in verse 19, yet one group is least and one group is greatest. Now, I have to confess to you, I don't know exactly what Yeshua means by least and greatest in these verses. I really don't. I have some, some, some ideas. But regardless, I don't want to be called least. <laughs> I don't want to meet Yeshua one day and have him declare to me, Ariel, you relaxed the Torah, and you taught others to relax the Torah. Therefore, you abolished the Torah. Therefore, even though you're in the kingdom, Ariel, you're called least. I don't want the master to say that to me one day. Would you want him to say that to you? I don't think so. So therefore, I think it's a safe bet to go with the understanding that Yeshua is trying to teach me, his follower, not to relax them or teach others to relax them, which is tantamount to abolishing them. Rather, Yeshua is trying to teach me to fulfill them, which is tantamount to doing them and teaching others to do them. And in so doing, he declares that I am greatest in the kingdom, and I'm in fact a kingdom participant. So, let's go back to my commentary. Just because Yeshua obeyed the Torah perfectly, this doesn't excuse believers from remaining obedient to its commands. Yeshua fulfilled, but he fulfilled so that I can become the perfect model. I'm sorry, so that he can become the perfect model so that I can follow after. He becomes the exemplar. He becomes the, the example, the model Torah obedient person, right? He becomes the teacher and I become the student. On the contrary, now that we have a perfect example of Torah obedience to emulate, we too, by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we too can and should pursue Torah obedience and teach others to do so if we wish to be obedient to the Master's words here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So what exactly got nailed to the cross if it was not the Torah? Recall the words in Colossians 2.14. Let's just look that verse up. Let me turn to my Bible here online. Colossians 2. 
Most of you are familiar with this particular verse. Colossians 2.14 reads, uh, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. End quote. And again, standard Christian um, theology would interpret this verse along the lines of, this means Jesus nailed the Torah to the cross, therefore, by nailing it to his cross, he took it out of the way for me. He, he made it, he rendered it void, obsolete. He rendered it useless in my life, as it were, in the word. And of course, we've already explained that Yeshua could not have been, could not have meant this meaning when he talked about abolishing the law or fulfilling the law. His use of the phrase fulfill cannot mean abolish. It's as almost, it would be as if Yeshua absurdly stated, I did not come to abolish the law, but to abolish the law. Right? That doesn't make any sense, right? That's nonsense. I didn't come to abolish it, but to abolish it. Because if we interpret fulfill as not having to do it anymore, then in, in effect we're rendering fulfill as abolish. And therefore, this cannot be what was nailed to the cross. Let's keep reading my commentary. Paul explains in Colossians 2.14 that it was the certificate of our debt, our ultimate failure to pay for our sins, that was what got nailed to the cross. It was our sin. It was our shame. It was the debt that we couldn't pay. That's what got nailed to the cross because the sins were put on Yeshua. He became the sacrifice. He became the ultimate payment. He became the um, he became the uh, uh, what does the, uh, uh, the the Hebrew say? He became the the, the kaporet, the, the the mercy seat. He became the place where the blood was shed so that the righteousness of God could be fulfilled. Because I couldn't die for my own sins. My life was not sinless. My, my life was not perfect. And the payment for sin demanded a perfect sacrifice. And only Yeshua met that requirement. Therefore, the debt that I couldn't pay was what got nailed to the cross. As I keep reading in my commentary here, it was not the Torah that was nailed to the cross. Right? Follow through with the logic. It's not the Torah that got nailed to the cross. We owed God a debt that we could not pay because the payment demanded a sinless sacrifice, a payment we could never make on our own. This accords with the Torah, which actually adjudicates penalties for unrepentant sinners. By Yeshua's blood, those penalties, debts, those penalties, which are debts, have been paid in full and have satisfied God's courtroom ledger. They have been nailed to the cross. Let me uh, pause in my commentary here. We've all seen the courtroom dramas where the judge brings the gavel down and declares the um, person in the court acquitted, not guilty. How can the judge do this? Because the penalties are usually at that point in time um, paid or they are excused or they have been... Um, they have uh, uh, been proven, that the, the person has been proven not guilty. So in the courtroom ledger, the judge has the right to declare whether the person is guilty or not guilty. In God's courtroom, when God looked at, at Ariel and saw the sin debt that Ariel owed, the sin debt that Ariel could not pay, when Ariel took on Messiah as his advocate, God took the sins 
and applied them to Yeshua's account. And therefore, Ariel was set free, and Yeshua bore the penalty. Yeshua was the one that died. I was set free. Yeshua was the one that died. So it is my debt that got nailed to the cross. It is not the Torah that got nailed to the cross. So let's keep reading in my commentary. The question's almost done. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul teaches that because believers have died to sin in Yeshua, right? Romans chapter uh, 5, 6, 7. Um, because we have died to sin in Yeshua, the ultimate penalty for sin, which was death, no longer applies to us. No longer applies to us. I no longer have to fear death because Yeshua took the penalty for me. Jesus nailed these penalties of the Torah. He nailed those penalties of the Torah that were reserved for unrepentant sinners to his cross. Amen. That's what got nailed to the cross. The penalty for sin, the payment for sin that I couldn't make, Yeshua made that payment because his account is infinitely more righteous than my account. He could make the payment. I couldn't make the payment. Right? As I close this particular question, for a fuller treatment on the sacrifices of the Torah, read or listen to my commentary titled Towards Understanding Sacrifices and Atonement, which is available at my, uh, at my uh, congregational site at uh, graftedin.com. So I hope that explains Matthew chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 2 a bit more differently, and, and hopefully a bit more um, accurately. All right, let's keep reading. Let's read question number four, and this will be the last question that we study for this uh, teaching today. Um, we'll start with question five next week. Question, doesn't Paul teach in many locations that we are free from the law? Free from the law. Um, before I even answer the question using my commentary, um, this particular question is extremely common in standard dialogues between Christians and Messianic Jews. And um, if, you've, if you've ever had a dialogue with your, with your, say, your pastor, your Christian pastor who may not embrace Torah observance or may not uh, think the way you think about um, keeping the Torah and things like that, he's, off, he's probably going to tell you, hey, Paul taught us that we're free from the law. And Likely, your pastor is going to turn to the book of Galatians, or he probably turn to the book of Romans, because there are a number of passages that use the con use phrases that lend uh, lend their meaning to the concept of being free from the law. Let's read my short answer, and then I'll see if I can develop more of it as we go uh, through the the uh, commentary to Galatians. But uh, just a short answer to suffice for now to whet our appetite. Answer. Biblical freedom does not mean free from law. We are free in Messiah. I'm not trying to deny the notion of biblical freedom. That is a central teaching to the Bible, and I do not want to deny that. We are, in fact, free in Messiah. But the question becomes, what or to whom are we freed? What are we free from? To what have we been freed? Biblical freedom doesn't mean free from law. Again, knowing that Yeshua set us free from sin, right? Recall the discussion I just had from the previous answer. Yeshua set us free from sin, its proclivities, its bondage, and its ultimate penalty, which is death. 
helps us to understand Paul's teachings on this subject of biblical freedom. Paul teaches explicitly in, um, again, probably Romans 5, 6, 7, 8 are a good place to just park out for a few weeks where this concept of freedom from death, freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from condemnation is is um, taught over and over in those passages in the book of Romans. And of course, this must be um, true in the book of Galatians as well, because um, Paul's theology in Galatians obviously lines up with his apology and is is a his um, theology in the book of Romans. So, reading the rest of my answer here, the paradigm set by the Exodus narrative teaches us that sin, which is bondage, prevents us from truly worshiping God the way He deserves to be worshipped. Right? Moses said, let my people go so that they may serve me. Let's pause for a moment and think about that concept. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They could not worship God freely because the pharaohs had them working all day and night building uh, building cities for the pharaoh, building those uh, pyramids, I believe. So they couldn't stop and keep a Sabbath day. They couldn't stop and worship God the way that they wanted to worship God because they were slaves. Slaves are not free. Slaves don't dictate their own schedules. Slaves are slaves. That's the whole point of slavery. And Moses knew this, and God knew this. And that's why as we read through the Exodus narrative, we need to understand that the paradigm, the picture that's being painted for us by the narrative in the book of Exodus, is that as the children of God, they were slaves, and therefore they could not worship God the way God intended for them to worship. What was the solution? God would send a Savior. God would send a Messiah. Moses was that Messiah figure. God would send Moses into the midst of the slavery and rescue the people from their slavery. Moses took the people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, to the foot of, uh, uh, through the desert, to the foot of Sinai. And what happened next? God gave them the Torah. God gave them the Ten Commandments so that they could do what? Begin to worship God the way that God wanted them and expected them to worship Him. So, freedom, the theme of biblical freedom, is not freedom from the law. Rather, let's start reading my commentary now. Once Yeshua makes us alive in Him, and sets us free indeed, we are then free to worship God properly without the fear of condemnation or bondage to sin. That's true biblical freedom. Recall that before, when we were slaves to sin, now we're just using our own personal lives as example. Before you accepted Yeshua, you were a slave to your sin. You may not have thought you were a slave to your sin. Maybe you were fooled. Maybe you were blinded to your own proclivities. Maybe you were blinded to your own condemnation. Maybe you were unaware of the ugliness of your sin because your eyes were darkened. At least mine were. That's how I was before I came to know Yeshua. I didn't realize how ugly my sin was before God. I just went about my own business doing whatever I thought was right in my own eyes. I didn't realize that the fruit that I was bearing was fruit for death as Paul would describe in Romans chapter uh, 5 and 6 and 7. The fruit that I was bearing was fruit for death because it was done in selfishness. It was done in the power of the flesh. 
I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and I didn't even know it. But thanks be to God that Yeshua came and opened my eyes. And now, through hindsight, I can look back and I can realize that the sin and the life that I was leading, the sin that was that permeated my lifestyle before I got saved, the lifestyle I was leading was leading to death. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, as we conclude this particular question, let me read, uh, finish reading the commentary. Once Yeshua makes us alive in Him and sets us free indeed, we are then free to worship God properly. This means walking out His Torah. And we do this without the fear of condemnation or bondage to sin. Recall Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now condom- no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, have, we don't have to fear condemnation. We don't have to fear the penalty of sin. Why? Because Yeshua took that penalty for us. Remember? Yeshua took the death penalty for us. Therefore, we can freely pursue worshiping God. We can freely pursue Torah obedience like the Master taught us to do. And we can do it under the power of the Holy Spirit within us. The last sentence in my uh, answer basically says that. This means we are free to walk into Torah the way God intended it to be walked out. And how is that? By the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. By the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Don't think your Torah observance is going to be done by your own power. It's a cooperation between you and the Holy Spirit within you. Amen? Amen. For further information on this particular answer, read Romans 8, 1-7, through 7, as well as answer 10, which we will get to in the following weeks. Okay? And with that, it is about the top of the hour, and I will stop with the questions and the answers there in the commentary. Um, next week, we'll start our discussion with question number five. Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we're not under law, but under grace. And we'll start unpacking some of these phrases that Paul uses in his letters into uh, Romans and in Galatians. As a special treat for those who uh, join the live class, um, I will make the, um, uh, I'm going to offer a 15 minute question and answer session. So let me go ahead and give a general dismissal for those who can't stay for the 15 minute Q and a session. Um, and then I'll entertain your questions that you might have. Okay. Let's go ahead and close in prayer now and we'll draw our study to an end. And I expect to see everyone or hope to see everyone back next week at the same time for our study on exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's close in prayer. Abba, we bless your name. We say thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Yeshua. Thank you for sending him to be the payment for our sins. Thank you for taking upon himself the penalty of the sins that we could not bear. Thank you, Lord, for taking upon yourself the punishment that I couldn't bear. Lord, you died so that I might live. Thank you. Thank you. Now I can live my life for you. Now the life I live, I live by the power of the Holy Spirit within me. Thank you that I have been set free from sin, that I've been set free from condemnation, that I can no longer that I no longer have to worry about the punishment for sin, Lord, which is ultimately death. But Lord, now I can press into the righteousness of God and Messiah. Thank you. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you, Lord, for bringing all the students out today. I thank you for 
the participation, for the interest in the uh, in the um, the commentary. I pray that you'll continue to bless them, Lord, even as I pray for each and every student each week. I pray that you'll bless them where they're at. You know their needs. You know their concerns. You know their weaknesses. You know their failings. Lord, forgive them where they fail you. Lift them up. Draw them close to you. Strengthen them with your perfect love. Draw them close to you so that they can be um, better equipped to teach others to be strengthened even as they put on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, even as they continue to put on the mind of Christ in Romans chapter 12. Thank you, Father, that we have been made into the image of Messiah. Bless you, Father, for all these good things. Continue to bless the ministry, Tetzay Torah, and help me to um, continue to press in as a Torah teacher. Thank you for all good things. We'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>